I'm Denise. She's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise. She's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Welcome back to the Editing Podcast. So we are delighted to welcome back a special guest who wowed us with her expertise and fabulousness last time she came on here. That's right. It's the marvellous Crystal Shelley, who helped us open our minds and improve our editorial practice when she last came onto the podcast to talk about authenticity reading. Yeah, so welcome, Crystal. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me back. You're so welcome. It's so lovely to see you again. So we were thrilled when Crystal agreed to come back and help us and our listeners understand more about microaggressions. Now, one way of looking at this is spotting microaggressions that our clients have introduced into their writing. That's right. But the angle Crystal's going to approach this from today is another side of the fence, that of the editor, and how all of us can work to avoid bringing our our own identity-based biases into our editorial practice. So, Crystal, why don't we start at the beginning and perhaps you can explain to us what exactly are microaggressions, not specifically in editing, but but generally? Yeah, that's a great question because it's important to understand that before we even go into editing. Microaggressions are brief, commonplace comments or actions that signal biased or negative attitudes toward marginalized groups. They're often unconscious or unintentional. So as opposed to more overt displays of hate or bigotry, microaggressions can often be dismissed as ignorance or jokes, but they're still harmful. So some examples. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. um, Like banter. Like, right, you know, like, right. like people are just and there's been a there's been a massive case of that in Britain recently with um in terms of our cricket teams hasn't there Denise yeah that's right yes I have people like as you see Crystal people dismissing things as oh it's just a joke it's just banter mm-hmm. but actually like you say it has an impact on other people yeah for sure so yeah some examples of what microaggressions can look like include telling people of color that they speak English well when English is their first language, or it sometimes articles might refer to a woman by her first name, whereas, you know, men are referred by their last name, mm. or when a gay person is jokingly told that their sexuality is just a phase and they'll get over it. So they might seem like minor things if you just hear about them, but they come from a place of bias and they can do a lot of harm to the people who are experiencing them. Yeah, That's so interesting. That, um, point you raised there about women being called by their first name and men by their last name I see that getting picked up a lot more recently Mm. Um, during this pandemic when they've been interviewing people and there's been examples of um, women who are you know perhaps professors in microbiology and their their titles aren't being put on the screen but a man with the same title has professor or Mm. the woman like you say is addressed by their first name but the man is called professor or doctor Mm -hmm. even though she may have those titles as well and it's it's really insidious isn't it it's it's (laughs) all around us without us really realizing it Mm -hmm. so so what would you say that these look like in more specifically in editing then crystal yeah so writers often make conscious choices in their writing to 
affirm their identities or to follow up-to-date language guidance or to use anti-oppressive language. So microaggressions in editing occur when editors make changes to that text that undo or undermine a writer's conscious choices without having discussions with the writer first. Mm, yeah. So um, I think it would be really helpful, Crystal, if we can maybe work through some examples. So can you can you give us one? Yes. So an important style recommendation that's happened in the last two years is the capitalization of Black. Black is recommended to be capitalized when referring to race or identity, but an editor might see it in writing and lowercase it because that's what they're used to seeing, or maybe they don't understand the importance of capitalization and they think it looks weird like that. But that capitalization is a conscious choice that's been fought for and lower casing it is undoing that. Yeah, that's a really, really a great, great example um, yeah. and something that comes up in my work quite a lot as well. And I think that's one of those things as well where if you um, if you make the effort to uh, be involved in in diverse editorial communities you're much more likely to be exposed to the conversations around these sorts of things and these mm -hmm. these choices um and that's another um important point for editors to to seek out these oh. forums and these areas where they can hear from other editors um from different um races and ethnicities and different backgrounds to to learn more from them mm -hmm. and it also helps you move away from that that even even a lot of editors sometimes even don't realize they're being pedantic or, or, or peevy with mm -hmm. their with with the consistency so sometimes you know i've heard i've seen editors say in the past well i don't capitalize white therefore that it's inconsistent and, mm -hmm. and it's like we we need to be able to we need to be able to have a, a develop this mindset that enables us to 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 drill a bit deeper with our consistency and say well I'll, I'll always be consistent when I'm using black and, and referring to ethnicity or our identity but I'm always going to lowercase white um, and, and so it, it is really important as Denise said just have these conversations and, and be exposed to it yeah I think that's to, to, those to listen yeah it's to listen isn't it mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Another example would be hyphenating compound nationalities like Asian American or French Canadian. It's common to see these hyphenated, but both Chicago and AP recommend not hyphenating them. And removing the hyphen can also be a powerful statement of identity and belonging. Henry Furman, who's a friend and a retired copy desk chief of the LA Times, he wrote an article for Conscious Style Guide called Drop the Hyphen in Asian American, where he explores what the hyphen can signal. So an editor might insert the hyphen without understanding its significance, even when the writer has consciously chosen not to hyphenate. Yeah. So with yeah. that and with I mean, the capitalization of black, you know, the editor is committing a microaggression that's harmful, likely without realizing it, but they're undermining what the writer is doing. Yeah, God, the, the weight of a hyphen, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the load that that brings with it. It's is right we don't think about what yeah. something like capitalization or hyphenation can do it, yeah. to us it's just you know part of the style but there mm -hmm. there can be so much more behind it yeah. absolutely yeah and and another area that perhaps you can talk to us about crystal is um 
I mean, I've heard and taken part in conversations about whether non-English words should be italicized in English text. So maybe you can tell us something about that as well. Yeah, this is a big conversation that's been happening lately. You know, a lot of us are used to seeing non-English words italicized in text, no matter the context. And it's usually done as a signal to readers to say that a word is in another language and it's something to pay attention to, which can be good for teaching purposes, but there are some drawbacks that can come with it. So for one, um, English has a lot of borrowed words and phrases that yeah. aren't italicized because yeah. they're so common. You know, you yeah. wouldn't see cappuccino or kindergarten italicized. Um, but people who are multilingual might switch between different languages. So italicizing non-English words can signal otherness and take away from the way speakers switch naturally between one language and English. Um, and uh, Personally, too, I feel that italics can be distracting. Many editors and publishers have chosen not to italicize non-English words unless they're used for emphasis or for words as words. And this is an ongoing conversation, but I do see trends shifting to favor keeping non-English words in Roman. Mm. And, and you've made such a good point there. I mean, what is a non-English word? When you think about how English itself it, it has changed since, say, the 14th century, when it was unrecognisable to, to, <laughs> in some ways to what it is now. It seems odd, doesn't it? You could, if you, mm -hmm. if you really wanted to be, to go deep with this, you could probably italicise an entire text and go, that's <laughs> actually not what English looked like, you know, whenever. <laughs> and, um, and I agree with you about that that distracting thing, especially when, when you're working with fiction and uh, you might, like you said, you, you're using italic for thoughts or, or words as words, but also for thoughts. And if then, if you've got, and look, when a reader reads a, 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 a word that they identify as not English, they can usually do that with the letters. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't need yeah. the, the italic as well. So. It can be, it can mm -hmm. be like, you know, sort of hammering the point home there really. And, and, it, and it lifts the reader out of that yeah um you know lifts them out of the story really doesn't it when it's yeah like that's a really good point pointing at something you know yeah. so it's like shouting a little bit yeah 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 and drawing yeah. attention to the italic yeah. rather than the words themselves and just yeah. the, the, the the continuous uh narrative or dialogue that the that's that's in those words on the page mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i must mention fiction there but um uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more about that because um, when editors butcher authentic narrative and spoken voices that use so-called non-standard grammatical structures, that's a problem, isn't it? Um, maybe mm -hmm. we could explore that a little bit, Crystal. Yeah, so Louise, I'm sure we both run into this all the time as fiction editors. You know, sometimes editors get so caught up in trying to make English proper or adhere to a set of rules they believe exist that they impose these on the writing, no matter the context. I mean, you, you mentioned like uh, pedantry earlier, right? Oh. So fiction writers may choose to write their narrative dialogue in ways that reflect certain dialects, regionalisms, colloquialisms, you, know, you name it. Oh. And if an editor changes ain't to isn't, or I'm doing good to I'm doing well in order to, you know, sound more proper, then they're signaling that these phrases we hear every day in speech are wrong or have no place in stories. 
That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, because we, you know, I see that a lot with um, Scots and Scottish where, you know, um, people are very good at code switching because, you know, Scots yeah. is often seen as, um, a, a, a slang or common and actually people that write authentically in Scots they're using their language to express you know how mm. they speak in the real world yeah. think of people like you know Irvin Welsh or whoever and um, you know th- there's a lot of people look down on that like you know it's not proper Mm-hmm. You can't see, but I'm doing air quotes here. Um, <laughs> you know, but what is proper English? That That's is right. English that <laughs> That's a whole speak. conversation. Yeah, it is Who a huge those, conversation, yeah. isn't Who it? Who sets yeah. those standards? Who set yeah. those standards that 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 decided it was a standard? Mm-hmm. Probably um, not the kind of not not the kind of people who are like most of us. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I I had a, a thing with that in in a project I'm working on at the moment. Um, uh, not to do with um race or identity but it's it's a story that features um a former marine and i noticed that the uh, author had capitalized marine um all the way through and uh my first instinct was to lowercase it because soldier was uh lowercase and police was lowercase and and then i was thinking about the recording we were going to be doing tonight and i thought hang on a minute just hang on a minute before you get too clever there and I went and it took me three minutes to find the answer on the internet and that Mm. that was the interesting thing and some major US newspapers have actually changed their style guides to allow for to um to make uh that word capital capitalized Mm. uh in all instances again it's about um just respecting the wishes of those service people and um Mm -hmm. And so it's not about whether I agree with it or whether I actually think that the the capital letter looks odd. It's a piece of fiction and the author has obviously made a conscious decision and and I would be doing exactly what you suggested right at the top of this recording, Crystal. I would be undoing something that was a conscious decision made by him that reflects a particular position that he takes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even in fiction, when it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's, we're not dealing with an obvious academic political discourse, even in fiction, it's really, really important to, to just step back and, and, and think before you start trying to impose so-called consistency, what are you, you know, is this going to harm somebody? So that was an interesting lesson that I nearly even tripped me up mm. um, <laughs> just, just, you know, a few days ago. Yeah, that's a great point. It is, yeah. And this, um, I think we can get really tied up in consistency sometimes as editors and (laughs) and style sheets and style guides and forget Mm. about the end point here and what is the purpose Mm -hmm. of this writing and who is this writing for? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very true. You have to know the rules to break the rules, but sometimes the the rules are fluid and they're not not necessarily what you we're used to even two years ago you know things yeah. change that frequently yeah. um right. and I, I it does feel that we're in a time of quite a lot of flux at the moment oh. and mm-hmm. I think as editors we really need to um take the let time it go. to let, let it go, go. but let also go. To, keep, to keep up to date Louise I can't stand any more of your singing stop it <laughs> <laughs> anyway let's move on and I, I don't even know if I dare mention this but there is also the singular they. 
and, it, and it must sometimes I think it's we feel as editors have we not done this to death but right. it's, it's such an important point isn't it and it's one that people many people still struggle with and we've talked about it on the podcast before haven't we Crystal Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember what I listened to y'all when I go for my step walks and I'm like, oh, yes, the singular they. <laughs> y'all were talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder when we'll be able to stop talking about it, too. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there are editors who hate the singular they because they, they you know, they're, <laughs> they think it's grammatically incorrect or just not right but it is the most gender inclusive singular pronoun that we have in English at least for the time being unless another one comes along so if a writer has used the singular they to be more inclusive and an editor changes it to he or she and that's doing harm it doesn't matter whether an editor thinks it's right or wrong it matters what a writer wants to do with their writing Mm, exactly. I'm all in favor of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am. Um, I, I work a lot on student textbooks, and I routinely change he or she to they. Now, mm-hmm. I, I what I do is I I don't even go back and ask the desk editor. I make the change, and then I tell them in my handover note that I've done it. Um, mm. because I just think we shouldn't be, um, perpetuating that in textbooks that are teaching kids or adults English as a you know as another language they, they need to know that they is an acceptable singular uh, certainly mm-hmm. within a lot of British schools now um, regardless of what's happening actually in the classroom for the teaching uh, in terms of the more um, uh, a, a sort of uh, what's that word <laughs> I've forgotten what's the word anyway it's it's um, you know the, the pastoral side of, of school and college um right certainly in my experience with my own child um I've noticed that the teachers are right on it in terms of um talking about gender inclusivity talking about mm. non-binary people mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that he or she aren't or aren't the only pronouns out there and mm-hmm. introducing them to some of the neo pronouns that are uh gender neutral and they is one of them and and yeah. so mm-hmm. so it's it's more it's even a case that the the way that we edit needs to to keep in step with some of the decisions that have been making in our education system and and mm-hmm. it's really important like especially like the work you do Denise I don't work on any of that type of thing but that work you do on um, educational materials it's really important mm. but that, and that impo- mirrors what's going on it's, it, absolutely it's mm. important that students see themselves reflected in the materials that they're, yeah. they're using yeah, to absolutely. learn mm-hmm. yeah. um, rather than it being a, a different thing it's just it's usual and expected to see that stuff yeah. it's not, mm-hmm. therefore it's not othering mm-hmm. so crystal um can we talk a bit a little bit about why these microaggressions microaggressions <laughs> I, it's a hard we, word i know in fact denise is the only one not to stumble over it so far it must it must be my scottish don't accent jinx it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we can have a little um tremble uh denise before the end of the podcast let's work yeah. on that i'll work on it yeah yeah so why do microaggressions occur in editing crystal 
Yeah. So as I mentioned, these are usually unintentional. An editor likely isn't meaning to do harm. And they might happen because an editor is unfamiliar with the material, so they don't know what the latest guidance is. Or they might be following an outdated style guide or dictionary entry. Or they might just think something's wrong because it goes against what they're used to. So when an editor assumes they know what's right without researching or querying the writer, then they might intervene incorrectly. Yeah, that's a great that's, point. That's a really good point. Yeah. So, Crystal, can you tell us a little bit about what the impact of microaggressions can be on the writer? I mean, how, how do these affect them? Microaggressions in editing can lead to significant distrust on the writer's part and, you know, because it may be doing harm to them and to their writing. And this is especially true for a writer who is affirming their identities or choosing anti-oppressive language and style. Um, and they can be yet another reminder for a writer that they have to keep fighting for validation or inclusion in publishing. Um, one example that I think a lot of editors may have heard about was in December of 2020, there was an article published. Um, Christian Minter wrote an article about an experience with an editor who made damaging copies or damaging changes to copy um, that resulted in them deciding to pull their article. And it was about um, language regarding race, um, mm -hmm. Black people in particular. So um, Christian Minter wrote this article and said, quote, small tweaks that seem harmless can create a totally different narrative. Editorial choices can either elevate our message or filter and silence it, end quote. So I think that's very powerful in showing what these microaggressions in editing can do. Again, even if the editor isn't trying to do any of this harm. Mm -hmm. That 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 quote just sums up totally, doesn't it? That just encapsulates everything of the unintentional damage that an editor can do um, mm -hmm. through lack of awareness. And a really good reminder that it's if in doubt, query rather than mm. just, you know, getting your digital red pen out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some listeners are thinking, this doesn't apply to me because the projects I work on are this or that. So why is it important for all editors to know about this? Many editors will probably say that one of the most important rules of editing is do no harm. I mean, we try not yeah. to think about rules, right? But I think yeah. um, that's one that many of us follow. Yeah. Um, and we often think about that in terms of introducing errors, but it's important to know that we can do harm to the, the writer and the writing through microaggressions. And for me, understanding this reminds me to be humble in what I think I know and to be curious about everything. You know, it, it really doesn't matter what type of editing we're doing, what genre we specialize in, or what clients we work with microaggressions can occur in anything we do yeah like you say crystal it's, it's really humbling just to keep that in mind isn't it just to mm -hmm. um be aware of the, the power of our decisions um um you know they can do good but they can do harm as well yeah mm -hmm. and, and, so, and also when we we do that harm we just we we don't just harm our writers we harm our our own industry's reputation and the trust mm -hmm. in us and yeah. that's uh that's uh that's 
a, a different problem, but a problem worth acknowledging. Definitely, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Crystal, could you perhaps give um, give us and our listeners some advice on what work editors can do to avoid doing harm when it comes to their editing practice? I say this a lot, <laughs> but there's a reason why I do. Um, query as a learner rather than assume as an expert. Mm, so right. editors are experts on a lot of things, right? Especially when it comes to language, but we're not experts on a writer's identities or always with what they're trying to achieve with their writing. So we can ask questions of both the writer and ourselves, rather than just go in and make changes without having the knowledge we need to do so. Also understand when we're not the best person for the job, just like we might turn down a job in a different specialty or genre because we're not the best fit. We can evaluate if the writing is about a topic that's very involved or requires knowledge of sensitive subjects. And sometimes a project might be better served by an editor who has specialist knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Don't be afraid to say that. I love that. That, um, Query as a learner rather than a seen as an expert. Just saying that again so that people can hear it twice. We should all have that <laughs> on post-it notes on our screens, you know. T-shirts. Crystal, you need to get t-shirts, definitely, or stickers or something. I will get on that. <laughs> yeah. Much, much. <laughs> so one of the things we often hear editors say is about how do we learn about what we don't know? And many of us are conscious mm -hmm. of not expecting those who have lived experience of microaggressions to do all the work. You got any advice for us on that? Yeah, this is a tough one and it's an ongoing one too, just because, you know, how do, you, how do we know what we don't know? Um, so um, we can learn about our own unconscious biases and knowledge gaps. And this can involve understanding our own identities and our relationships with privilege and oppression. And again, that's a huge topic that can mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. many episodes. I won't go into all the details, but that is, uh, that is key in all of this. But aside from that, you know, when a writer is writing about identities or experiences I don't have, you know, my job is to listen research and ask questions, not to impose my will. And it's important for editors too, to stay up to date on current language guidance beyond popular style guides and dictionaries. As good as they are in providing direction, they are not, you know, the end all be all on, you know, every up-to-date style choice, especially when it comes to social justice movements. There are also some great resources and um, other points too. So I recommend signing up for Conscious Style Guide's monthly newsletter. Conscious Style Guide is a website that talks about conscious language and it's very relevant to this conversation. I think a lot of editors probably know about it already, but if you don't, please check it out. Um, but if you sign up for the Conscious Style Guide newsletter, then it's, you get a, a in an inbox, an email in your inbox, <laughs> you don't get an inbox, <laughs> you get an email in your inbox once a month with um, articles about latest language guidance. So that's a really easy thing to do. You can also, you know, if you're on social media, follow activists who talk about language issues. That's a great way. And that's something that I do. And I learned so much 
from that. Um, and also read stories written by marginalized people and that can that can show what affects them and their communities. So I think as editors, we should always be curious and absorb the conversations that are happening around language change. Great that's, advice. That's um, great advice, Crystal. And we'll put, we'll put a link to the Conscious Style Guide in the show notes as well. Definitely, Perfect. definitely. And there's just one thing I want to pick up on that I said right at the beginning of um, this episode where I said about editors being in groups where there are diverse editing groups where there are perhaps other editors of colour and from different ethnicities and I want to just add that the burden should not be on those editors to explain things to us <laughs> you know that yeah. we don't expect them to put in the emotional labour but we can learn when when mm -hmm. they talk and I think that's really important is I, I've seen um activists talking about this about this expectation that we may put on them to constantly be explaining themselves or explaining decisions and mm -hmm. I think the the um the onus is on us as editors to do our own research and and seek out the information rather than just sit back and expect others to pour it in our ears all the time mm -hmm. so I just I just wanted to um, clarify my <laughs> my statement at the beginning there that I don't expect to just turn up in these places and and have it all handed to me on a plate yeah thank you for adding that and and two if you do ask for knowledge and expertise compensate you know just like we ask or an ex and hope and expect to be compensated for our time as editors you know if we're asking someone else for their advice or knowledge or lived experience we should be compensating them for that too yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. So another resource is uh, Ruth King's Mindful of Race, which is brilliant for helping people understand the language of race and think about race and think about the, something Crystal said, think about their own um, identities and um, and how those, you know, just being, being conscious of, of the, maybe the privilege you have and, and working out how to talk to people about um, issues of race at least. Great. We'll, we'll pop a link to that in the show notes as well then, shall we? Crystal, I think we could probably, as you've alluded to more than once in this conversation, we could probably do, we could probably talk for a year on the podcast about <laughs> this topic because there is so much to talk about and to dive into mm -hmm. that, that impacts editing and our relationship with writers and, and the audience that they're writing for. Um, so I just want to say I'm sure we'll have you back again at some point <laughs> if you're willing to come and talk to us because it's always Absolutely. so enlightening um just thank you so much it is has been another brilliant enlightening episode for us and our readers you just never fail to deliver really useful stuff indeed I couldn't agree more so that's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform you prefer. Yes, thanks so much for listening. Now, if you'd like to help support the editing podcast, you can join our Patreon community for as little as £3 a month and get exclusive access to live question and answer sessions for just a few pounds more. We'd absolutely love to have you on board. If you're interested, just hop over to patreon.com forward slash editing podcast. We'll include a link to that in the show, show notes too. So she's been Denise. And she's been Louise. 
and Crystal's been Crystal. Join us again soon. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.